We have already been a very long course in the history of the study of worship song. I do uh, approach this morning's matter with some enthusiasm because now we finally make our way to what are the most important parts of the history. That might seem like a strange thing to say because we are still a millennium away from the New Testament and yet that transition to the new administration era is not the most significant thing in the history of the service of song but it's rather this period we've come to the eve of a change a great transition period the time of the ministry of that last and perhaps greatest of the judges and prophet Samuel and the rise of the kingship of David who will be called the sweet psalmist of Israel we have been busy about a question how does God want us to worship him in song in our study of the regulative principle we have been reminded that it is of no concern what brings us pleasure what sorts of things might please delight us in the service of song but our principal consideration is what is it that pleases him what has he commanded us to do what things are most for his glory I hope that in our history so far as we see the the service of song in history and it has gone through quite a bit of change I hope that our general assertions concerning the first two great ages have been uh, thoroughly worked over and vindicated first if you look at your uh, outline again from the creation of the world to Moses the first 2500 years of the earth's history we have no evidence at all that the people of God worshipped God in song I think that we are going to see some material today that will uh, strengthen us to where we could say that it seems altogether likely that they did not. Again, I can't say that we have a conclusive proof concerning the period, but we will see evidence today that it seems altogether likely that they did not. We then have been uh, a good handful of weeks in that second period from Moses to the time of David period of roughly 500 years and we have observed once again the divine method concerning this ordinance and this is our principal concern we are trying to learn the divine method and will concerning this ordinance we find during that period that he gave songs to the prophets and only to the prophets and even then they were only occasional with respect to the tabernacle there was no regular service of song so on some particular great occasions the Lord would give a prophet a song people of God would sing it and then in the intervening periods there was no song 
no vehicle for an ongoing service of song. As I said uh, this morning, our work this morning and in the coming weeks could not be more important in this issue. The transition from Samuel to David is a watershed transition. Everything changes. And in the matrix of the things that we will see in the coming weeks, for the first time in the history of the world, the people of God will be given a regular service of song for their use. I call you once again to attention. We will be in some parts of the Bible history with which people are not very familiar. But I'll tell you a true thing, little flock. This is one of the reasons why almost no one knows anything about how to worship God properly in song and why all of this has been left up to the fancy and will of men. These texts have been largely unexplored, largely neglected. And so the people of God, with respect to the service of song, largely walk in darkness. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10. We come to the rise of Samuel's uh, ministry and the very beginning of the reign of King Saul. The year is roughly 1100 B.C. To give you some some sense of the relative time frames, uh, the last worship song was in 1315 B.C., under the ministry of Deborah. 215 years or so. There has been no song, no worship song among the people of God. And then something extraordinary happens and things are beginning to change. Uh, change in a lot of ways for the better. Do you remember that in, in 1 Samuel, earlier in the book, it said that during this time, the word of God was precious, that it was scarce, that there was very little in the way of faithful teaching by the priests and Levites, and they were lacking prophetic oracles for their guidance. The word of God had become a very scarce and thus a very precious thing. With the rise of Samuel, another generation of prophets is also on the rise and the word of God is going to become more plentiful. But joined to that, there was a most marvelous service of song. 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulchre and the border of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found. And lo, 
Thy father hath left the care of the asses and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor. And there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them and they shall prophesy and the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man and let it be when these signs are come unto thee that thou do as occasion serve thee for God is with thee and thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal And behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass, when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that is come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. No doubt the occasion of this text is well familiar to you. It is a uh, semi-private anointing of Saul for the kingship. This would have seemed like a very unlikely thing to Saul, that he should be king. We'll find him later, uh, hiding in the baggage. At this point, Saul is a very humble man from a relatively humble family. And he does not expect the kingship to devolve upon him. You will remember that at the end of the book of Judges, we saw uh, Gibeah of Benjamin destroyed by the other tribes because of the crime, the crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah committed in her midst. That's Saul's hometown. It doesn't have a very good reputation. Benjamin is among the least of the tribes still at this point in history. And Gibeah of Benjamin even less still, a place of some infamy. 
it's all of this business about Saul being king would seem very unlikely to him. But Samuel gives him three signs to confirm it to him. And the uh, geography, if you look on the back of your outline, you'll see the map. Saul at this point would be moving from Ramah to Gibeah, southward. Uh, The distance uh, from Ramah to Gibeah is roughly 10 miles. Okay, so keep that in mind. It looks like a great distance perhaps on your map, but it's only about 10 miles. Palestine is not a very big place. Saul will be on his journey from Ramah to uh, Gibeah, and he will on that journey receive three signs. The first two signs need not detain us. It is the third sign that is our principal interest. And interestingly enough, the principal interest of our text. The first two signs are not repeated. It's simply said in a general way that they were fulfilled. And then a particular notice is taken of the fulfillment of the third sign. But look with me again at the fifth and sixth verses. The third sign as prophesied. After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass when thou art come thither to the city that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them. And they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. Samuel tells Saul here that he shall come to the hill of God. There's a tremendous amount of discussion about where this place might be. Having looked at all of that discussion, I'm a bit surprised that it, it went on so long. This is almost certainly Gibeah itself, Saul's hometown. There was no doubt a hill there called the hill of God because this appears to be the uh, resident place of these prophets and thus it's gotten this name the hill of God this is confirmed by the fact that there was a Philistine garrison at Gibeah we know that for sure from the word of God so this appears to be Gibeah itself and there there was a hill and on that hill there was a group of prophets Samuel tells Saul that as he approaches this hill these prophets will come down a company of prophets prophesying to music. And here there is an element of continuity, something for which we have been prepared, and an element of discontinuity, something new. First of all, with respect to continuity, this is not the first time in the biblical revelation that we have found a prophet prophesying to music. We have seen it with Moses on several occasions, Miriam, Deborah. So we have been prepared for this already. This ought not to be strange. But here is the difference. This appears to be regular. Something that's not just done on this or that occasion, but something that they do regularly. 
we are going to confirm this later from the history of the kings, but we're going to find that Elijah and Elisha, some hundreds of years later, have similar schools, and that music is played at those as well. So this appears to be a regular occurrence among these prophets. Apparently, as the music played, they were stirred up, and the Spirit of God would descend upon them, and they would prophesy. During the days of Eli, the word of God had been precious, but now the word of God is increasing for the blessing of his people. A brief note about the instruments. Two of these we are familiar with and two are new. Uh, Here called the tabret, we have once again the tof, the timbrel. This was um, the same instrument used by Miriam some uh, 350 years before. Uh, We have mention again of the Kinor. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. This would be probably not a harp, although it's normally translated in the King James Version a harp, but rather a lyre. To non-musicians, they probably don't look altogether different. But... Basically, it had something like a square frame. It could, it could be symmetrical or it could be sort of off-center. Um, strings would be strung along two sides uh, of it. But it would have a sounding board, and this would differentiate it from a, from a harp. So in that sense, it might look at just a little bit more like a guitar, um, but it, like a harp with a sounding board attached to it or behind it to project the sound. We have also what is called a halil, which is a pipe. They played uh, several different kinds, but no doubt a very simple sort of pipe. Some liken it unto the contemporary oboe, but a, uh, but a pipe of some kind or variety. And a navel, which also appears to be another kind of lyre or perhaps even a lute. A lute is an archaic kind of guitar. So a harp would have no sounding board. A lyre looks very much like a harp but has a sounding board. And a lute would have uh, a body like a guitar uh, cut open to receive the sound and project and amplify the sound. This is about as close as we can come. These instruments are not exactly identified you do have to recognize that uh, even being able to make this degree of uh, designation doesn't tell you very much about what these instruments might have actually sounded like, how they were uh, tuned and whatnot. So uh, we've not come to a great understanding of what all of this would have sounded like, but it sounds in the multiplication of the instruments like the music would have sounded very full. You've got... uh, all of the rudiments here of, of an orchestra. This is the third sign that Saul would meet this company of prophets and then that the Spirit of God would descend upon him and he would join in their number and prophesy, although not himself a prophet. So these were the three signs to confirm his kingship 
they happened. And then at the very end of our narrative, as a special notice is taken again of this third sign, notice that the people are amazed that Saul would participate in this. And they say, is Saul also then among the prophets? This has a very important implication for us. This implies that the common people did not participate in this. That this was a song that belonged to the prophets alone. And so the people say, does this mean, since Saul is participating, that he is also among the prophets? Consider, if all Israel was regularly singing God's praise, there would be no amazement when Saul joined in. But they are amazed. His participation implies the conclusion that he is among the prophets. Let me try to illustrate this sort of dynamic. Imagine that uh, in God's providence you moved away from this place for a period of years and you came back 15 years later only to find one that had been a child in our midst now standing in the pulpit. And because he's standing in the pulpit, you might ask the question, does this mean that he is a pastor? Because standing in the pulpit is something that, generally speaking, is limited to the pastor. You see that? But no one would ask ask that same question if you simply saw that same child 15 years later singing in the congregation. You wouldn't come in and say, does this mean that he's a pastor? You see how all of this uh, implies that this was something that was limited to the prophets. And the people are amazed that although they know Saul, and they know his household, and they know that he's no prophet, does this mean that he is now included among the prophets, now that he has joined in their company and prophesied to Saul? As I mentioned, this does uh, provide some further evidence about the two preceding ages. And it very much confirms some of our conclusions, gives them uh, greater strength. Remember, we had said that songs were given to the prophets. And we find that that method continues. If you are convinced of nothing else from what we have done so far, if you have taken away that point so far, you've done enough and if you are well persuaded of that point so far you have learned much about the divine method the songs are given at the hands of the prophets but also this confirms the conclusion about the two preceding ages that there was no regular service of song they would not be amazed that Saul was singing to the musical instruments if this is something that had been an ongoing practice in Israel Saul's participation in it implies membership with the prophets. This is seen at the time as being a distinctively prophetic function. And the regular uh, prophesying to the musical instruments is a service that is strange to the people. But again, note the change. These prophets seem to be constantly employed in this prophetic work with the use of these musical instruments. 
Just a note, look again at your map. These prophets are about 10 miles away from Bethlehem, the city of David. Just put that in your pocket. All of this is going going on in David's neighborhood. And it's going to have a bearing upon him and his growth. This morning I wanted to look at just one other text concerning the era of Samuel. Flip forward to 1 Samuel chapter 19. We are probably not quite 40 years in the future now. Saul is no longer that handsome and humble young man. Saul is old, bitter, jealous, and much vexed by the devil. His jealousy has come to be directed primarily toward David. And you will remember we looked last week at the reason for this jealousy. David is a greater general than Saul has ever been. And he comes to uh, hate and fear David. And it's the beginning of the persecution of David in uh, chapter 19. David has been forced to flee from his home. And this is where we pick up the the narrative in verse 18. So David fled and escaped and came to Samuel to Ramah. So we're back in Ramah again. And told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Nile. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told David, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then went he also to Ramah, and came to a great well there, that is in Seku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they be at Nioth and Ramah. And he went thither to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all all that day and all that night. Wherefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? How things have changed for Saul. Once this had been a sign of his kingship, And now it has become a sign to him of his downfall. It is very interesting to me that the first place that David goes in his flight is to the prophet. And perhaps with good reason, you remember that without armies, 
without horse and chariot. Samuel had shown himself to be well able to protect the people of God. By Samuel's prayer in a former age, God had protected his people by thunder and lightning and the terrifying of enemies. David goes there to find safety, and he finds it. God, once again from on high, protects his servant. There is a band of prophets here at Ramah, very much as we we found at Gibeah. Probably different bands, inasmuch as these appear to have been under the direction of Samuel and his normal abiding place was at Ramah and the other the others appear to have been stationed at what was called the hill of God in uh, Gibeah and we will find such bands in other places when we get into second kings Bethel and Jericho here Samuel presides for those of you that are interested in questions concerning the office of doctor this is one of the proof texts for the office here you have this great prophet of God presiding over a school for the training of other prophets of God in our particular text there's no notice of singing but the similarities with chapter 10 can't be missed The word of God is increasing indeed. And we're starting to find these bands of prophets all over Israel. Saul's messengers are seized three times. They come for David and each time they are, as Saul was a generation ago, seized by the Spirit of God and they prophesy. Saul, apparently in some measure of Frustration comes himself at this point, and he also is seized. And he prophesies as he did in that former time. And the question is asked once again Is Saul also among the prophets? But I want you to notice the geography once again. Ramah is just 13 miles from Bethlehem. This prophetic Activity involving uh, musical instruments is in David's hometown. And I want you to notice that in this last episode, it's something with which we are sure that David was personally familiar. He had first-hand familiarity with these things. It happened right in front of his face. And so next week we will turn our attention to David himself who is called the sweet psalmist of Israel and who will be the prophet under whom God will give to his people for the first time a regular service of song. We would be able to uh, press on to that even now, but I thought that it would be good for us to plant our feet for just a few moments by way of application. And first of all, I, I hope that you don't weary of my several notices that uh, there is much for us to be thankful for when we consider these texts. Consider that for 2,500 years there was no service of song for the people of God. And for another 500 years, no regular service 
Indeed, generations would live and die between Deborah and Samuel and the rise of that generation of prophets. And I suppose that your heart will be lifted up in thanksgiving to the extent that you have perceived the service of song to be a benefit to your own soul. Because many, many, many generations had no such benefit. You might even think in our, in our current day, song has become something so very common in um, uh, Protestant churches, but you should also uh, recognize that for centuries under the Roman tyranny, the service of song had been taken away from the people of God and committed to choirs. And so although the people of God would hear it, they would not participate in it. But God has given you this service of song. And he also blessed us with the reformers to revive it in our midst. It is a great blessing. Consider, have you ever experienced the... uh, Have you ever experienced some sort of uh, peculiar Christian joy? And you've been looking for some particular matter to express your joy to your God. And to open the Psalter and find their words suitable for the expression of your joy. Perhaps words that you yourself could have never uh, composed. Have you ever had such joys where indeed words escaped you? And yet you found in the Psalter words suitable. And your heart was lifted up in joy even as your voice was lifted up in song. What a great blessing and privilege to have it. Have you ever had a great sorrow or great affliction? Inarticulate sorrows. Sorrows that could find no speech. And yet you picked up uh, the words of the sweet psalmist of Israel writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and you find that the Spirit is able to express what your own soul could not. And your heart was lifted to your God in sorrow and an expression of sorrows. And you had a lively sense of the presence and power of God. Have you ever suffered persecution? I know in our land we don't have those straight bodily persecution, but the frowning faces of family and friends. And you opened your Psalter and found words not only appropriate, but perfect for the occasion. John Calvin, in his commentary upon the Psalms, called the Psalter an anatomy of the soul. There is no frame in which the Christian might find himself that will not find its expression, vent, and outlet in the Psalter. But we should give great thanks to God that he has given us this precious benefit not given to all believing people in all ages, but given to us as a precious benefit. And in our thankfulness, that ought to lead us to use it much. Being thankful for it, we ought to take it up as a precious thing and use it frequently. 
of course we do this in public places and we do this in our families do you do this in your in your private and personal worship you should I'm frequently impressed I have in my Christian walk had an opportunity to read a lot of Christian biography and I have been frequently impressed how these great saints men of profound learning and judgment to have exercised great and important public ministries and they get to their the end of their lives and they'll say things like this and this is not an uncommon thing but they'll say something like this and these are also men of prayer but they'll say things like I wish that I had been more constant in what they called ejaculatory prayer prayer that's uh, that arises simply because of an occasion in the midst of a day whether it's um, bad news that has come or the tending of the garden you find these great saints saying I wish that my heart had simply in the course of the day been taken up more frequently and does this not also apply to the use of song and the psalter because in some ways it's very much the same spiritual action how we could wish that our hearts were taken up more frequently but in the psalter it's no longer the imperfection of our own expression but rather the perfect expression of the spirit so even as our spirits are stirred by that Holy Spirit, He also gives us the very words for lifting our hearts up to our God. Would it not be a sanctifying thing for us to be more constant in our song? To learn the Psalter better so that we might know where to go when we find ourselves in this or that frame of mind or spirit? as we are thankful for the Psalter and for the service of song. Let us indeed use it much. I thought that we might conclude with the hundredth psalm. My mind was taken to this because of that very first line. Although it did not pertain to Adam... And it did not pertain to Shem. Although it did not pertain to Noah or Abraham, it pertains to us, all people that on earth do dwell. Sing unto the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. Let us sing to our God with all of our hearts. Please rise.